bring our awareness back in here. First of all, thank you, everyone. It's cold out there. It's been wet. It's cold. We recognize that, hey, it's a nice option to sleep in, you know, on a cold, wet January morning. But you're here, and we're really grateful for that. So let's take just a moment, calm our minds, calm our spirits, all those things that rush in in the quiet to fill the void. Have you ever noticed that? It gets quiet, you get a moment, and all of a sudden just rushes in all the thoughts, all the sounds. So let's just take a moment as we start this morning. Prepare ourselves to receive. You've worked hard to get here. Now, relax. Let go of the stress. Let go of the obligations. Let go of the work that it took to come here and what will follow this. And bring our attention, we bring our attention right here. Lord, because you have called us. Spirit, you are the one who has gathered us here this morning. To give and to receive, to listen and to speak, to learn and to impart. Holy Spirit, we recognize your presence among us, in us, working through us. And we're so very grateful that we are called by your name, empowered by your spirit, delivered by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, being called illegitimate is not very nice. There's a common word that we use for that. It's actually a technical term, but it's used often as an insult, as a derogatory way of referring to someone. Illegitimate, besides the technical meaning of being the offspring of two people not joined together in marriage, carries the additional weight of indicating being unplanned, unwanted, and unwelcome. And this label affects how a person is viewed and received by others. Unwantedness begets unwantedness. It's a tough designation to bear. I'm illegitimate. I know this not just hypothetically, but experientially. When the two people who came together and my being was formed, that was not their intended purpose for being together. I was unwanted, unplanned, and unwelcomed. But something happened along the way. Something that changed the course from being subject to the brutality of that designation. I was adopted. Two people came together and they said, we want this child. And dare I say, they delighted in me. 
And so while the world and while my very flesh described me and defined me one way, the love of two other people described and defined me in a very different way. Now here's the thing. Which one am I going to listen to? It's not just... It's not just one thing that happened. This is a constant choice that I have. Do I listen to what the world says, what my flesh says, what my biology or history says? Or do I listen to the voice of being chosen? Do I listen to the other voice? This is also not just a choice that I face. I believe it's a choice that all of us face. And we're going to see how today in our text, the voice of God choosing Jesus, someone, dare I say, of questionable parentage in the eyes of the world. But the voice of the Lord choosing Jesus makes all the difference for Jesus. And likewise, it makes all the difference for us. So pray with me as we go into the text. God, we need to hear your voice this morning. We don't need more information. As good as that is, we need an encounter. We need an experience. We need to hear your voice. God, we need something supernatural. We need to recognize that you are in us, that you are working through us, and that you are here among us. That this is not just of our own doing, but you have ordained it and are here. So tune our hearts and our minds to receive what you have to say today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this new year, we're looking at the book of Matthew, and, and we're looking how this story is our story. We started with Ryan doing a, a fantastic job on the genealogy, showing how, how all of history was re, recaptured or captured in the idea of the genealogy that Matthew presents. And then Bonnie came and she shared how the redirecting of God, subverting the expectations and subverting the plans against God were divinely ordained to bring us to this point. And now we come to the baptism of Jesus. And it's interesting because Mark, in his gospel, this is where he starts. To Mark, the most important thing, like the kickoff of all Jesus' ministry, is his baptism. He doesn't do anything with genealogy. He doesn't say anything about where Jesus came from. He, Mark, starts with the baptism. And all the gospel writers tell it a little bit different. But this is where we are today. We'll also see, and I believe this is why Mark maybe chose to start with this, is that for Jesus, everything changes with his baptism. That this, this is where life for Jesus irrevocably, irreversibly changes, radically changes from being an obscure 
carpenter's son of questionable birth in a backwater village, baptism kicks off what we come to know and what we, most of us really understand about Jesus is it starts here. So let's look at the text. We're reading from Matthew 3, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came into the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. For he is the one about whom Isaiah the prophet had spoken. The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is an aside that Matthew is writing about John that's referencing Isaiah 40. We need to understand John is, John is the embodiment of the Old Testament prophets. Elijah likewise was dressed in rough clothes with a leather belt. John is taking and bringing those prophetic messages into this contemporary setting. And he's got a basic message here, repent, that Jesus is likewise going to use as his basic message. And when I teach in the missionary training schools, often I'll, I'll start and provocatively ask, what is the gospel? And people will give the kind of the common understanding of either four spiritual laws or praying the Lord, the sinner's prayer or doing things like that. When in fact, the first word of the good news is repent. That's a hard word. Most of us take that word repentance as indictment. Most of us, when we hear, when we hear the word repent, we feel like we're, saying, we're, we're being told, hey, quit doing the bad things, shape up, start doing the right things. And to be sure... There are elements in that, but I, as I was considering repentance in this context this week, I thought one way, now not, not an absolute definition, but one way to really understand repentance is as a reconsidering. It's a reconsidering of everything in the light of who Jesus is. It's a reconsidering of all of our affections, afflictions, and allegiances. And they are to be radically reconsidered in the light of the Messiah's appearance and the opportunity and invitation of the kingdom among us. To repent is to consider everything about us with new information. Right? I mean, we all have these afflictions tragic things that have happened to us, chronic pain, loss, addictions, accusations. Oftentimes the world is saying, you deserve it, or there is no meaning to it. It just, stuff happens. Then there's also our affections, the things that we love, the things that we invest our time in, the things that we invest our hopes in, all of our affections there and it's asking us to reconsider that. Are those things really eternal? Are those things really profitable? Do those things reflect reality? As well as our allegiances, the things we line up, the way we classify ourselves. We're always trying to make sure we're a little bit higher on the scale, a little bit further along based on our allegiances. 
Repentance looks at all of those and says, really? That's, that's going to be where you put your hope? That's the group or the idea or the flag that you're going to follow? This repentance that comes from the appearance of the Messiah causes us to reconsider all of that. Let's continue. It says, Now John wore clothing made from Hamel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. His diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. And John the Baptist, let's pause here. John the Baptist is an interesting character. Um, Many theologians consider uh, that John and Jesus spent considerable time together as young people. Obviously, we know that their moms were related, that they had an encounter even before they exited the womb. And, and again, many people who have studied this, and they look at the message of Jesus, they look at the message of John, they, they, see, they say it seems inevitable that John, in a way, mentored Jesus. That they worked out the message together, that John helped Jesus grow into the fullness of the understanding of who he was and what his message was to be. And that makes John's witness even more powerful. We see him as kind of the supreme model of what it means to lay down position and authority. Because if this is true, which you, know, you can take it or leave it, but I think the evidence is, is pretty compelling that John was, John was the more preeminent, that the followers of John, the disciples of John, kind of the, we use this word lightly, not like in the popular, but the cult of John, the group of John, was pretty powerful, was pretty popular, had a lot going. Nobody knew about Jesus at this time. A lot of people knew about John. And yet, John lays all that aside. He doesn't take it as Jesus is a threat. And he also doesn't seek to just put Jesus up there for his own agenda and manipulate things behind the scenes. But John genuinely lays down his ministry and promotes Jesus. He's an incredible example to us in that. The text goes on, then when people from Jerusalem as well as all Judea and all the region around Jordan were going out to him, and he was baptizing them in the river Jordan, and they confessed their sins. Now, baptism was widely practiced in this culture. Baptism wasn't like what we see. Um, Jane and I just recently were in Germany where there was a a baptismal um, house, a Jewish baptismal house from the the Middle, Middle Ages. And it was interesting because it was right on the side of the river. And this was another thing that's important to know about baptism in Jewish times. They wouldn't necessarily have something like this, but they would have tubs or areas carved out alongside rivers. Because in the Jewish thought, the water that you were baptized was cleansing your, your sin. It had to be living water or running water. It couldn't be stagnant water. Do we see the indications of what Jesus later does as he calls himself the living water? And so they were, that's why they were by the river. That's why John didn't set up a horse trough in the middle of Jerusalem and do it. They were down by the river where they practiced baptism, and this was something that the culture practiced. 
But it was not a one-time-for-all thing. It was something that was done as part of the ritual cleansing, according to the customs. So people were coming out. They were used to this. It says, but when John saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you offspring of vipers. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit that proves your repentance. And don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Now, we cannot miss the tension that's going on here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming, and they're basing their whole identity on the fact that they're Abraham's son. They're sons of Abraham, children of Israel. Call it, right? We got Abraham as our daddy. That means we're legit. We're bona fide. John says, really? Your rocks can turn into Abraham's son. You're about to see somebody. It doesn't say it, but we're going to see it. Essentially, he's saying, you think Abraham, it's good to have Abraham as your father? Wait till you see this kid. He's got God as his father. And so there's this, there is this supplanting of identity from kind of the cultural DNA into this divine welcome of God. Not only that, but this patronage of God is going to be extended far beyond those who can show their pedigree on their birth certificate. It is going to extend even to us. He goes on, he says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one coming after me is more powerful than I am. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in hand. He will clean out the threshing floor and gather up the wheat in the storehouse, but the chaff will burn up with indistinguishable fire. And, and we, we lose it. We lose the meter of this in English. But man, you want to talk, this is a hellfire and brimstone sermon, y'all. I mean, that's just what it is. He ends each section with fire, fire, fire. John's serious here. See, baptism, we look at baptism kind of as an escape oftentimes, Right? I want to be saved. I want to commit my life to Jesus. I go, I want to be dunked. I want to be sure that I'm in. Hey, listen, the fire's coming. Fire insurance is legit. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's more than that. It's more than that. In this baptism that he speaks about, while we symbolically do it once, and I believe there's a very real supernatural transaction that happens in that one time, is also meant to be an indication of the type of life we are to li live. Just like the pickle, the cucumber in the vinegar to become the pickle. The baptism as Christians, we have likewise, not ritually, like the Jewish people did, who would go time and time again to, to cleanse themselves in baptism. But in reality, the experience, we are continually encounter the, encountering the baptisms 
of the Spirit. Jesus is always baptizing us. We need to be consistently encountering the washing of the living water, the cleansing of the fire. Baptism is to be an ongoing reality and part and parcel of our discipleship to Jesus. Sometimes we experience it as soothing, as cleansing, as release. Sometimes we encounter it as painful, as a stripping away of things. But the baptism is there, and it is part of our following Jesus. This baptism reorders everything in light of that. All of our plans and priorities, and we are stripped of anything else that we put our hope in to constantly orient us back to our identity as delighted in children of God. And we see this now as Jesus walks. He approached, he says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John to be baptized by him in the river Jordan. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me? So Jesus replied to him, Let it happen now. For it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John yielded to him. I'm going to be straight with you. This is an enigmatic statement. There's a lot of different interpretations of what it means here that Jesus says, we have to do this in order that all righteousness be fulfilled. The way that I understand it in the context, and this is just one understanding of that, When we understand that Jesus came to do what we couldn't do for ourselves, Jesus is always succeeding where we fail. That's, that's one way, really, of understanding the story of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, is that everywhere that we fail as human beings, everywhere that Adam failed, everywhere that Israel failed, everywhere that we fail, Jesus gets it right. Jesus succeeds in those things. And, and I, think, I think what's happening here is Jesus is essentially showing us the way. He's not putting himself above the process. He's not just coming down and giving us instructions. Do this, don't do that. Oh, listen, follow my steps. You know, one, two, three, and you'll be okay. He's like, literally, he says, follow me. Watch, just watch. Come, do this. And he starts his ministry by submitting himself to being the model, to showing us what it means to be obedient. Did he have to do this? I really, maybe, maybe, I don't think he had anything to repent of. I really don't. I think he does this to say, look, I'm in it with y'all. I am in it with you. I will get down in the water with you. Now, I can't tell the story because I won't do justice to it. I'll probably cry, but if you ever want to hear the story about getting into it, talk to John Farthing about his story with Tuffy. It's a fantastic story. 
if you want to know what it looks like for Jesus to get in it with us. After Jesus was baptized, just as he was coming up out of the water, the heavens opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my one dear Son. In him I take great delight. Could anything more precious ever be said to a person? Just stop. Let that soak into your soul this morning. Get a picture of Jesus being delighted in by God. We need to take note here that this is delight. And this is before Jesus ever preaches a sermon, before he ever performs a miracle, before he ever calls a follower. This delight is not based in performance. This delight is not based in legalism or law. This delight is the pure, unfettered affection of a father for a son because simply it's his son. And he delights in him. The delight of God is in the person of Jesus. And the same is for us. You see, as we, and this goes on to be developed, and this is why we start here, but it develops into so much more. When we read all the writings in the New Testaments and the stories to come, we constantly see that how we are included, how this is not, this is not exclusive for Jesus this is a not a way of taking a human being and separating them and putting them above the rest of humanity, but rather taking God, inserting him into humanity, and the blessing of that delight spreads to us all. Because as God delights in Jesus, he also delights in us. It says clearly in Scripture, Jesus is the heir, he's the firstborn, but we are of that family. By faith, we are adopted into that family. And that delight that God has for Jesus permeates us all. This is our story. This is our story as the church. This is our story as Grace Church. This is our story in every one of our families and every one of our beings. What defines us is not what it says on our birth certificate or our passport, our voter registration card, or our paycheck stub, or our clinical evaluations, but the voice of God delighting in us. It, it seems that this whole flow of repentance, not just from sins, but, but a real ordering of our allegiances and our affection that moves into this baptism, this once baptism and this ongoing baptism. This spirit-filling baptism. This winnowing baptism that leads to obedience is what ushers us into the kingdom 
and the kingdom into the world. Because just like the blessing doesn't stop with Jesus, but it extends to us, it's not supposed to stop with us. It's not supposed to stop within the confines of this wall or the borders of this property. But this is the message that the world desperately needs to hear. You see, every one of us, whether you know your biological parents or not, the world is saying you're illegitimate. That's what the world says. Our flesh shames us, condemns us. Society continually feeds us the message, you are what you buy. You are what you produce. You are defined by your commerce, your worth, or your looks, your title, your accomplishments. And listen, I don't care what standard you're using, you're going to come up short. There's always going to be someone better, faster, stronger, better looking, richer. The world is constantly calling you illegitimate. The only thing that is powerful enough to counteract that message, to overcome that message, to redeem that message, is to hear the voice of God saying, you're my daughter, you're my son, and I delight in you. We see that in the evidence of Jesus here at his baptism, and we should see it continually in the way that we walk this out. You see, what God thinks and says about us should be our ultimate defining reality. What God thinks and says about us should be our ultimate defining reality. It was for Jesus. We're going to see this time and time again. Jesus is going to show us. He walks into the water to show us what to do, how to be obedient. He's going to show us how to live a life that is defined by the voice of God telling him that he is delighted in, that he is beloved. He's going to show us what that life looks like so that we too can live that kind of life. What God says about us is the most important thing about our story, and it draws us into God's story. It changes everything about our present, about our past, and about our future. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we transition now into this time of response. Because we need to act on this, as I prayed earlier, y'all, we don't need more information. We don't need more information. We need revelation. We need the experience of God. And that's why we get up and that's why we take communion. Because we need to taste it. We need to feel it. We need something tangible that says, yes, this is true and real. And it's here and now. It's not just a story for someone else. It's my story. It's our story. So we come and we take the bread, we take the cup as physical reminder, evidence, and witness as to the reality of Jesus being right here, right now. We also reflect on this because if this is going to be real, you got to make it real. It can't just be me downloading stuff. you you gotta, you got to deal with it. You're going to have to deal with it. It may be tough for some of you to hear this. I honestly believe being loved and delighted in is a very difficult thing to accept. 
It may be one of the hardest things to accept, to really accept that we are loved unconditionally, without merit, without earning it. The writers throughout history have talked about how this is a terrible thing to bear in the true sense that it uproots us from everything else if we are to believe it. We also return in worship. When we get that experience, we understand that that's what it's about. Natural. It is good and natural to sing praise in response. And then we also take up an offering because we admit that none of us here is without need. There's no one here that doesn't have a need. There's also no one here that doesn't have something to give. Every single one of us. And so we give the offering to demonstrate our willingness to share with one another because of what we need and because of what we've been given. Thank you for being here. Thank you for starting this year, 2019, in this place in the story of Jesus, our story. I pray that our experience of the the love of God that delights in us will define everything we do this year. Lay down your burden 
celebrate those uh, those truths those realities um, that John mentioned that we uh, should live and live under that he delights in us that we are his children that should cause us to be different um, to desire to be different for him for his kingdom's sake
Yes, Lord God is ever almighty. He's ever almighty always. Yes, Lord God is ever almighty. He's ever almighty. Yes, Lord God is ever almighty. He's ever almighty Yes, our God is ever almighty. He's ever almighty always. Amen. Amen. Hello, Grace. We have two announcements. Reminder, we do have a potluck uh, following the service today. And since today is Update Sunday, we're asking everyone to fill out an updated contact form, please. Uh, all the information does stay here, and it's one form per family. Um, for those of you who are not staying for the potluck, please... The forms are on the back table with pens. And for those of you who are staying for the potluck, the forms are on the back table with pens. Um, if you didn't bring food, don't worry about it. Still come, please. Um, and if you are worried about it, go to Harps, come back. We'll still be here. It's all good. We do need help with tables and chairs set up. Anybody who'll join in on that, that's always incredible. Uh, second announcement is we have a leaders meeting after service Next Sunday, another potluck. Yes, we are good at those. And uh, RSVP, please, for child care to Stacy S-T-A-C-I, at gracechurch.com. Soup, sandwiches, dessert. It's just another lovely, lovely potluck for Grace. So what I wanted to do today was, if we could all read the benediction together, uh, make all the use us, and then just make it corporate if that's okay. May the waters of God's grace surround us and uphold us. May our baptism strengthen us for the work ahead. And may the spirit that descended upon Jesus at his baptism fall upon our shoulders as we seek to do God's will. Amen. Glory to God.